0: I'm a fool. I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Hello, we are back to thinking again. Sorry if you missed me last week, but. Life happens, and when you're skidding down the highway because your tire is basically falling off, it is what it is. So, we are back though, and I am here today to tell you that God never leaves his people. <clears throat> that will never be more clearly displayed than in the book of Isaiah. So we saw the judgment oracles of the beginning of the book. The second half of the book, still written by Isaiah, no, we are taking the Deutero-Isaiah idea, balling it up and throwing it out to the window because it is trash. It is definitely not Scottish, as Michael Myers once said. So... What am I reading here in chapter 40? A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. (coughs) Excuse me. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out then he answered what shall i call out all flesh is grass and all its loveliness loveliness is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the lord blows upon it surely the people are grass the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our god stands forever believe it or not that right there that is comfort this is the beginning of redemption for israel Judgment has been brought. Yes, nobody's going to deny that. Nobody's going to argue that. But in the midst of that judgment, God is still redeeming a people that is His people. If you fast forward to chapter 41, you're going to see the same thing encouragement from God. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. Their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia... I'm sorry. The acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Notice the lessons from the prophet. Notice what's going on. God is doing this so that what? his name will be praised because the people will recognize that they are responsible to him, that he will preserve them in righteousness if they are his people, that he will accomplish all these things. 42 goes to the same thing. He calls out for the servant. <clears throat> Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I, will have, I, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the... Nations, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Hmm. Who does that sound like? It sounds an awful lot like what you'll see in your New Testament, doesn't it? That's a reminder to you, Christian. That God is working all things. He is accomplishing. The rest of the chapter (coughs) continues on the motif. You move to chapter 43. You get to reminders of redemption that is coming for Israel, for God's people. You get reminded of that by pointing back to the history of Israel. And since we have gone through all of these books... My goodness, my throat does not want to cooperate. Hold on. There it is. Since we have gone through all these books, we know this history that all of humanity, every time we get a chance, what do we do? We go astray. What did Israel do? They went astray. What did they do in Exodus? What did they do in Numbers? What did they do in Joshua? What did they do during Judges? What did the kings do in Samuel? What did the kings do during the reign of David? What are, during the, the time period after the reign of David? What did the kings do in the divided kingdom? This was a nightmare, and it was a nightmare because sinners sin, amazingly enough, and humanity, left to its own devices, produces iniquity. And destruction. But God, who is faithful, who is long-suffering, who is precise, who will accomplish all that he has promised, is preserving his people so that he will be savior to those whom he redeems, and he will be the righteous judge upon whom there is no question when he condemns their sin. That's what you're seeing. Chapter 44 of Isaiah talks about future blessings. Why do the blessings have to be future blessings? Because the people are not redeemed now. They can't be redeemed now. Their iniquity, their sin is ever-present. Even the good kings, remember this. Remember this lesson from the kingdom years. If you don't know this, go back and listen to to the episodes on Kings and Chronicles. Even the good kings during this reign are not that good. So Jehoshaphat is a good king, right? We're even told in 2 Kings that um, the only reason why Elisha even shows up to prophesy it is it Jehoram. I think it's, I think it's Jehoram, one of, the, one of the descendants of Ahab. The only reason Elisha even shows up to prophesy what's going to happen in the war is because Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, is there. And God regards him because of his uprightness. And yet Jehoshaphat's making alliances with Israel. Constantly made an alliance with Ahab. He's making alliances with Ahab's kids, but he's not removing idolatry, so he's okay. He's not great. He's just okay. This is not how it is to be for the people of God. The blessings have to be future. That's why they're warned to in 44. You're still seeing the blessings that God will bring about in the nations in Cyrus, who's mentioned in chapter 45. Now, yeah, Cyrus, who's not coming around for another uh, century or more, And isn't even part of the people that we're dealing with. I mean, Isaiah is writing in his ministry, you know, turn of the 7th century. Cyrus isn't coming about to the middle of the 6th century. The Persians aren't in charge. The Babylonians are in charge. The Persians haven't even arisen yet. And yet we're already looking for God's work in history, the work that he's moving along. How can we look to that? Because Babylon's going to be judged. Chapters 46 and 47. Babylon's sin will not be overlooked. Come down and sit in the dust. This is chapter 47. O virgin daughter of Babylon. You've gotten used to that language for Jerusalem in judgment, but now it's for Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. That's an insult because it's talking about the virgin daughters. She's not going to be tender and delicate. She's going to be downtrodden. She's going to be cast out. She will have to work. She will no longer be at leisure. In other words, Babylon, the instrument of God's judgment upon Judah, will be judged because they are not pure. If you want a good picture of this, go read Habakkuk, which we'll get to eventually. But go look at Habakkuk and see that God does not overlook any of these details. He is precise in his work amongst the nations. So you get to 48. What do you see? You see both sin and and salvation. Because I know that you are obstinate, your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. Therefore I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, My idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. We saw this in Deuteronomy, we talk about the entirety of Scripture being put together. In Deuteronomy, remember Moses, is it chapter thirty-two, thirty-three, I believe? Read Deuteronomy, it'll do you good. Moses is told to write a song and teach it to Israel. What's the song about? Judgment. It's a reminder that God literally tells him, when the people sin against me, they will recall this song and be reminded of my gracious good works, and they will return. This is the same thing. God has been preparing this people for these events for, at this point, centuries centuries. If Isaiah's ministry is 7th century, let's see, the Exodus is mid-15th century. We've been working on this for 800 years. And you could argue we were working on it before that with Israel in captivity, with Jacob and the nation going down into Egypt, trying to get the people of God to, amazingly enough, trust in God. Sounds like it would be easy. Sounds like it'd be something they would want to do. You would be wrong. This is not the default of humanity. This is not the default. This is why one of our foundations is God is accomplisher. Because when left to our own devices, Christian, we don't pull this off. That's why we rejoice at things like, he who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. I won't bring it to the day of completion. He will. Why we can celebrate with Paul that when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I am weak, I am rested and relying upon God. When I'm strong, I'm rested and relying upon me. And I'm failures. I am failure. But when I am weak, I lean upon Christ. When I am downtrodden, I look to God. When I am incapable, I trust in the one who is and was and is to come and nothing else. Later on in the same chapter, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, and your off- offspring like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. That's a reiteration of the blessings of Moses. Choose life. Do these things so that you may live. Honor your father and mother so that it will go go well with you in the land. I don't know if it was on here or in the sermon, so go listen to both. It'll do you good. Um, We talked about this with the commandment. Why will, it, why will I live long in the land because I honor my father and mother? Because the assumption is your father and your mother are honoring God and teaching you to do the same. Therefore, as you follow the path they have laid down, you are following God because they are following God. And thus you will do the same for your children. This is the call that Peter, uh, Peter, that Paul is always making. You see it in uh, Ephesians 5. You see it in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me. Follow after me as I follow after Christ or as I imitate Christ. Even here, I've said this before you want to understand your prophetic ministry, understand the events of Exodus. Why come back to this? Why does this sound like Deuteronomy? Because Deuteronomy is an exhortation based on what happened in Exodus. Exodus becomes that lesson. Israel, redeemed by God, wandering in sin, deserving of judgment, redeemed by God, wandering in sin, deserving of judgment, redeemed by God. What is that? Who is Isaiah talking to? An obstinate people, ever hearing, but not understanding, ever seeing, but not recognizing. This goes all the way back to his call in chapter 6. This is the work that Isaiah is called to do. It's not a happy work, but it's a necessary work because this is who God is and how he deals with his people. He proclaims his justice, his righteousness, and his mercy because those who do not listen and heed the warning, they will experience God as the faithful, long-suffering judge. Those who do hear the warning will experience God as the faithful, long-suffering Savior. Because he is creator, we will all deal and be responsible to him. All. The same message points us in two different directions, and you're seeing that here in Isaiah. That's why even in the midst of the judgment of the early part of this book, you saw the hints and the seeds of redemption. And even here in the redemption part of the book, you see the constant reminder and refrain of, or else. Because that's the warning. That's what's going on. So you get to 49, chapters 49 and 50. You get a future redemption in 49. You get a future provision in chapter 50. Notice the recurring theme there. Future. Why? Well, because that servant from um, chapter 42, we haven't found him yet. That future salvation where the roads are made smooth and the mountains are brought down and the valleys are brought up so that the plane would be available, so that the travel would be at ease. That hasn't been done yet. <clears throat> There's a reason why John the Baptist talked about that. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way for the name of the Lord. He was purposely reminding you of Isaiah because Isaiah is intentionally pointing you towards Christ, pointing you towards a future redemption because the people can't be redeemed as is. They have to be changed. There has to be a better sacrifice. There has to be a fulfillment. A fulfillment of all that God has promised, and it hasn't come yet. Therefore, there is a hope of the people of God, but there is not yet the realization for them of this final work. The prophets are pointing you to that. 51 and 52, go to 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Okay, that should be the faithful believers, the ones who are hoping to experience God as Savior. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Why would I look back to Abraham? Why would I look back to the foundation? Because Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't earn. Abraham didn't work. It wasn't because of Abraham's sacrifices. It was because of Abraham's faith. The calls of the prophets are the call back to the redemption of the people. How were they redeemed? Again, what separated the faithful Israelite from the faith from the faithless Egyptian? We've talked about this before. If the Israelite people on the night of the Passover had not put the blood on the doorposts, their son would be dead. If the Egyptian had put blood on his doorpost, his son would live. Why? Does the blood miraculously save? No. Putting the blood is a declaration that I'm trusting in what God has told me. I'm trusting in what God has said, who he is, how I wish to relate. Believe me, there were probably multitudes of people smearing lamb's blood on the lintels of their door that night going, I have no idea how this saves my son, but God said that it would, therefore I do it. Because those are people of faith, every single time. That's, that's what faithfulness looks like. That's why Abraham can go up the mount with Isaac, as Hebrews tells you, because he trusts that if, even if he does this, that God will raise him from the dead because this is the son of promise. So I have nothing to fear. I don't know how this is going to work and I don't know how this furthers all the promises of God, but it must because he's commanded it. Excuse me. That's why this all matters. That's what this is all supposed to be about. Getting you to look to the right place. That's why you get to 52. What does this look like? Hope in a servant. What's that servant going to look like? It's Isaiah 53. Look, just have some fun. I could probably spend a whole half an hour here, and I was tempted to, but I'm not going to. Go read Isaiah 53, and if I told you, if I didn't tell you and you didn't know that that chapter was written 700 years before Christ, but instead I told you that this is a part of the Gospel of Mark, or this is part of the, you know... The descriptions that Matthew or Luke give. You wouldn't argue with me. I mean, if you didn't know, you wouldn't argue with me. It's that specific. All of this redemption and all of the judgment of the book of Isaiah hinge upon the work of Christ. because Christ is the one to whom all authority has been given. At Isaiah's time, it would be He is the one to whom all authority will be given. He is the king to rule, the prophet to proclaim, the one to know and explain God who has seen him face-to-face, as, as Moses talks about. That's why those beginning chapters of John are so important. John 1, 2, 3, and 3, what is Jesus talking about? That he's explaining, he's showing the Father. That's why the apostles in the upper room, when you get to John 14, are like, "We, well, show us the Father, and we'd love, we, we would love that. Jesus is like, what do you mean, show you the Father? What do you think I've been doing this whole time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, it's a fulfillment of the promise given by Moses, the prophecy of the one to come. It is the restoration that Adam and Eve, who walked with God in the cool of the day, but have been separated by their sin from his presence, that as we stand in Christ, as we trust in his work, he calls us to himself and we are his. And because of that, And because he stands in the presence of God, as Jude puts it, we stand in the presence of God every single time. So read Isaiah 53. It'll do you good. 54, 55, celebration of God's work and an offer in chapter 55 of rescue for the people. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that for what for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance, incline your ear and come to me, listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. See, David received mercy, and David received promise of a king to rule eternally. That's part of this. It's part of this. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. In other words, we're talking about Christ. We're talking about God's promised redemption in the servant. Picture this, because this is, this is understanding the entirety of the picture here. You ready? So that suffering servant will stand in the line of David. He will redeem the people. He will, as we mentioned, answer all the questions about who is this one Moses is talking about? Who is this king who will rule eternally? Who is the one to whom the scepter is due in Genesis 49? Who is the one who will crush the serpent and his offspring? The answer is, what's your foundation, Christian? Who is the one who accomplishes things? It's not you. It's God. This is why we made a big deal out of seeing those foundations in Genesis. Because you read everything else through the lens of that. It always had to be God. The king. The prophet. The sacrifice. The eternal ruler. The suffering servant. Has to be God. Because only God can accomplish. Only God can sanctify. (coughs) Only God can can save. Why? Because we are all created, therefore we are dependent. Only God is independent. So, rapid fire time, you ready? 56 through 59? Future salvation in the midst of rebuke. So you get the rewards for obedience in fifty-six, you get the evil rebukes of fifty-seven, you get the reminders of observance and law keeping in fifty-eight, and the, the the declaration that those who fall short will be separated, that their wickedness is And it will be a cause for curse. None of which is new. None of which is antithetical to anything else Isaiah has said. Remember, why are they walking away? Why are they failing to be obedient to the command of God? Because they don't care. Because they don't love God. And the only reason they have persevered as long as they have is because God has preserved them for judgment. Why do you care about the commands of God? Why do you seek righteousness? Because you do care. Because God has preserved you for salvation. The difference is the internal motivation. The internal generation of work. Always remember, the work does not define the goodness. The goodness defines the work. And vice versa when it comes to iniquity. The work is not bad because it is evil. The work is bad because the person is evil. And likewise, the work is good because the person is evil is good, and the only way that is the case is if it is wrought in God. And she gets to chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, where will we see goodness? In God. Why will the light shine, as Jesus talked about in John 8? Because of the work of God. Chapter 61. Let me know if this sounds familiar. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's the passage Jesus read in the synagogue, Luke 4. And said, this has been fulfilled in your presence. In other words, this has been fulfilled. It's not accomplished yet, but it's been fulfilled because who's going to do it? The one standing before you. This is the longing of history. This is the work of God to get you to Christ. The failures of David, the failures of Solomon, the failures of Rehoboam, the failures of Jehoshaphat and Asa and Jehoram and Ahab, all of these men. Their failures are just arrows pointing you, saying, we long for the day when this is not true, but that day is not yet come. Same with the failures of Moses and the failures of Aaron and the failures of Samson and the failures of Gideon and the failures of all of Israel are reminders that we're not there yet. And that the works and words of Elijah and Elisha and even here in Isaiah are meant to point you not to themselves and not to you, but to God. That's why chapter 62, new glory, new name for Zion, because it's a celebration of the work that God will do. In the end, we'll rapid fire this in the end. 63 through 66 are reminders. There's vengeance and judgment on the nations. Why? Because God is just. And in the midst of that in 64, there's mercy and help, because that sin that we see being judged in the nations is the same sin we see in us. What separates them from us? What separates God the judge from God the Savior? Our recognition that we are his and that we are dependent and reliant upon him and that we have trusted in him because he is faithful and true and that we trust that he will accomplish all of these things. So you see the sin going on around in the rebellion and you see the work of God even in the midst of it, redeeming, sanctifying, judging, and then you finish off with what? the throne of God, the majesty and hope of his people, of the work that is to come. Isaiah literally summarizes all of what we are doing, all of what we are trying to assemble with this worldview. He is literally summarizing right here at the end everything we understand about God from Scripture and saying this is now how we live. We recognize that I'm not good, but he is. And by his mercy, I stand. And because I trust in his works, because I know his works are good, he will accomplish all that he has promised. And part of what he has promised to accomplish is sanctifying me, removing my sin. So I war, and I trust, and I call out to him to do so, because I know that as I call out to him, that he is faithful to pull me from the muck and the mire, to place me in his glorious kingdom. That's what Isaiah is pointing you to. That sin may be all around you, but trust in God, and you'll be clean. So what have we learned here today, children? God's judgment is against sin. God will not forget his people, and God's redeeming work cannot be thwarted. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can go to the website, find the resources. My favorite resource there that I borrow from on occasion when I do this stuff is um, our reading plan. So... If you have wanted to read through your Bible and you just don't know where to start, go start there because if you get behind or you don't understand, there's little little cliff's nose versions of things just to kind of help keep you on track and help you see the big pictures you go through. So if you have anything you want us to look at, we're going to try to get a couple more things done this week and continue our look at some of the different things going on in the world. If there's something you want to send, it to, send to us, by all means, thank you. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.